Psalm 86. It's our Old Testament reading this morning. Reading Psalm 86, as we think about uh, Jesus' beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, here in Psalm 86 we read, Unite my heart uh, to fear your name. We'll be talking about purity primarily as that which is is without uh, contaminants, that which allows there to be a singularity of purpose in one's life, um, a desire to serve the Lord and Him alone. And uh, so a heart that is not divided. We'll read Psalm 86 as uh, we make preparation for all of those things. Psalm 86, this is the word of God. Please give your attention as it is read in the presence of his people. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And then Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 8 is our text for this morning. Just verse 8. We'll read beginning in verse 3. These are, this is Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 3, focusing on verse 8 this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps you've had the experience of seeing a great work of art or accomplishment of engineering, and you're so impressed by it that you feel uh, a thought well up inside of you. I, I wish I could see or meet the person who made this. I've had the, I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to enjoy or appreciate really world-class arts, probably in the way that many do, but I have had the, uh, the privilege of seeing some very famous works of art. I saw the, the Mona Lisa behind very thick bulletproof glass at the Louvre in, in Paris, uh, and I certainly probably the most famous painting in, in Western history. And when you talk of the Mona Lisa, or if you study it and speak with others who appreciate it in a certain way, talk of that painting inevitably turns to talk of da Vinci. Why did he paint this painting? Why did he choose this woman? Who was it? Why did he choose the, the background that he did? Why did he make certain characteristics the, the way that he did. And certainly we would think it would be nice if he could answer those questions for us and to to talk with him about why he did something a certain way because it is a masterpiece and you want to get into the mind of the master. A couple of biblical examples of this would be uh, Herod with Jesus and the Queen of Sheba with Solomon. Luke 23 verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. He had heard about Jesus, heard about what he did. He wanted to see him. He wanted to speak with him. Queen of Sheba in in 1 Kings 10, there's a similar dynamic there. When the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem, the very great company, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, And his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She had heard about Solomon. She wanted to come see him. And she is so impressed, so moved by his wisdom, by his kingdom, by his possessions, by all of those who attend to him. It takes her breath away. Worship is something like that, but it's much deeper. We hear of God. We are taught of God in his word. We see him then with the eyes of faith, but we are filled with a a deeper desire to gaze upon the glory of God. This is what happens with Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Think of Moses who had seen these many great tangible signs of the greatness and the power of God. All of the, the plagues in Egypt, spoken with God, going back all the way to the the burning bush in the wilderness. And yet, in Exodus 33, after he has seen many of the works of God, 
He says, please, Lord, show me your glory. He wanted to behold God's glory for himself. One theologian puts it this way. Moses knew that ultimate rest and blessedness and satisfaction of the soul is not merely in seeing the works of God, but in beholding the glory of God himself. And the same is true for us. Not just to know about the works of God, but to behold the glory of God. That is where rest and blessedness and satisfaction of soul will come for us, just like with Moses. That is the only solution, to see the glory of God himself. This is the the great hope that we have, and yet there is tension there as sinners and those who have divided hearts, many times defiled hearts. The only answer to this great problem that we have, the need to see God, and also what stands between us and seeing God, the only solution is the mediator who speaks this beatitude, who says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus, our Savior, our mediator and redeemer, shows us the way to this great blessing of seeing, beholding the glory of God. And that answer is found in Jesus himself. Three things that we'll unpack this morning. First is the purpose of a pure heart. The purpose of a pure heart. Second, the perfection of a pure heart. And third, the purity of a pure heart. The purpose of a pure heart, the perfection of a pure heart, the purity of a pure heart. When we say the purpose of a pure heart, it's not so much what is it for, but rather there is a single purpose of a pure heart. To have a pure heart in this sense in which Jesus is speaking of in this beatitude is to have the desire to serve God in an undivided way. Give me an undivided heart, as Psalm 86 says. There's, of course, a a very important logic and order to these beatitudes. Not all of us have been here for all of these sermons on the beatitudes. So uh, quickly to review, we begin with spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, that is, who mourn over their poverty of spirit, who mourn that there's something deficient in them, keeping them from perfect communion with God, leading us to really the the, the pinnacle that comes one after that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We are to long for the righteousness that God gives which he gives to us in the gospel of Christ and which he forms and cultivates in us by the power of the Spirit. And then from that pinnacle point, Jesus then begins to start speaking about particular virtues that are more manifested in the lives of his kingdom citizens. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And then today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we think about, biblically, we think about the idea of a pure heart, there are basically two main themes that connect to to heart purity. One is being cleansed from iniquities, defilement. And the other is being pure in the sense of a singularity of purpose. Now, in a sense, these are connected to each other. The great New Testament scholar Don Carson says this, the dichotomy between these two options is a false one. It is impossible to have one without the other. The one who is single-minded in commitment to the kingdom and its righteousness will also be inwardly pure. Inward sham, deceit, and moral filth cannot coexist with sincere devotion 
to Christ. Now, that is certainly true. There's a very intimate and logical connection uh, between these two. But as we consider the beatitude of Jesus, there is a logical order to these two. And it is this. Jesus calls us to a singular heart pursuit of God. A singular desire for his kingdom, which will work itself out in a spirit-empowered striving after purity and holiness. Purity of heart, first, is a singular purpose of serving God with our lives. And if that is what is being cultivated in our hearts, if that, what, if that is what God gives us by his grace, it works itself out in a striving after purity and a life that is free from, more and more from the defilement of sin. One author per- puts it this way in regards to this beatitude. Here, pure refers to something that is without mixture or unwanted elements. It is undivided. For example, the boast of pure spring water is that it is free from contaminants. A coat made from 100% pure virgin wool is not mixed with other fabrics. A hamburger made from 100% pure grade A beef is not mingled with foreign protein. The heart that Christ commends is devoted to God and not distracted by idols, by selfishness, by pride or fame or money. Uh, The great preacher J.C. Ryle says this, The right heart is honest and single and true. There is nothing about it of falsehood, of hypocrisy, nothing of acting apart. It is not double or divided. What we are to seek is that our thoughts and speech and behavior are increasingly marked with a singular purpose with the the dross of compromise being scraped away. Christ is purging our desires so that they focus on our chief end. We've affirmed our chief end this morning. What is it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. One author says this, Purity of heart is to desire one thing. Purity of heart is to desire one thing. That purity of heart is put on display for us in the Scriptures in Psalm 73. We lead up to the end of this psalm where it has this beautiful, beautiful passage. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire apart from you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What we are to most deeply desire, what we are to principally seek in our lives is the service of God and the glory of God and the joy that we have in communion and fellowship with Him. We are to have a singularity of heart, a singularity of purpose. This really is a question of sincerity, of genuineness. God is the one who looks upon the heart. And sincerity and genuineness are plain to Him. They are seen by Him. God desires a frame of heart that is right before Him more than He desires a fulfilled checklist of religiosity. In other words, he desires a sincere disciple. 1 Samuel 15 says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. This can be seen with something like faith. There is sincere faith and there is insincere faith which says, well, yes, I understand the gospel and, and, and Jesus and forgiveness of sins. I accept all that. It doesn't really touch 
the, the inner chambers of my heart. It's really worked out in my life, but I, I accept it. It's fire insurance. Uh, I believe that I have been saved by Christ. Faith must be genuine. Genuine faith always brings works of holiness along with it. And we can see that as well in our pursuit of good works. Why are we to seek to fill our lives with good works? Is it for the glory of ourselves? Is it to be noticed by others and commended by others? Or are we to do them for the glory of God? Are we to do them because we perform these things ultimately for an audience of one? There's a a quietness, a solitude of the righteous life that wells up from the heart that we serve God. In work and prayer, we do many things that may not be seen or noticed. We do many things that may not be commended, but we do them for our Lord and our King. This purity of heart that Jesus commends, we need to understand it is within reach for genuine disciples by the grace of God. Jesus isn't setting this high bar and saying, this is something that, that it, you'll, no one will ever come close to. God will never look upon someone and pronounce this blessing and say that They are sharing in it. This is something that by his grace we can obtain. God wants us to say to him, I am sincerely yours. I genuinely want to serve you with my life. One one, one author wrote this, and I would consider this man a, a mentor, and he just wrote a book on many of these things. He says, purity of heart is not the boast of perfect disciples. It's not as if we say, okay, I've now purged my life of sin, therefore I have this purity of heart that Jesus is speaking of. He says, it's not the boast of perfect disciples, it is the mark of genuine disciples. To be sincere, to be genuine. When Jesus teaches us the great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, it is a question of genuineness. Who is on the throne of your heart? Who rules you? Who rules over your life? God demands that it be himself. This does not mean that you never do anything except that which has direct reference to God and to his word. It doesn't mean that we're all commanded to sort of withdraw and live the life of a monk or a nun. That's not what it means. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, many of these things may go unnoticed. A Christian plumber may bend pipes in a very similar way to a non-Christian plumber. A finished job, a good job, may look in many ways the same. Now, there may be differences, but the ultimate difference is what's coming from the heart. God calls me to this work. He calls me to do this, and from my heart, I do it as a way to serve him, to honor him, and to glorify him. You cannot multi-serve. You cannot have two masters. I read uh, a couple weeks ago, multitasking is doing twice as much as you should, half as well as you could, in about double the time. And so often we try to multitask, your work's not as good, ends up taking longer anyways. Singular focus is usually where productivity comes. The same is true when it comes to our hearts. Whom do we serve? Who is our Lord? You cannot serve two masters. Make it the Lord of all. Fill your life with prayer that God would grant us his grace for this singularity of purpose, that we would not limp between two opinions, as Elijah said in the Old Testament. 
that we would not serve two masters, but that ultimately our lives would be oriented toward the service of God, purity of heart. That's the purpose of a pure heart. Next, the perfection of a pure heart. The perfection of a pure heart. As we just finished saying, a pure heart is not a heart that never sins. So what we mean by perfection is not moral perfection, not that those who have a purity of heart will ever get to the point in their lives where they are completely free from from sin. But when we speak of the perfection of a pure heart, it's where it is ultimately headed. Where are we going? What is the end to which we're hoping to attain? And this is a Christ-centered perfection. For the end of the road for us is to behold Jesus Christ. To see him face to face. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The notion of seeing God is one that's been spoken of really all throughout New Testament church history. Scripture teaches us that we were made to see God, to be in fellowship and close communion with him. We were made to behold his glory and to enjoy his glory. That's the only thing that gives us ultimate satisfaction. Psalm 16 ends this way. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And that fullness of joy is nowhere else. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet, Scripture teaches us that nothing that is defiled can see God and live. Nothing that is defiled can behold this glory of God and live. Isaiah 6, very famous passage The prophet is brought into the presence of the glory of God and he hits the floor. He cannot lift his eyes because he is a man of unclean lips. So we are left with this great tension. We were made to see God. We were made to behold him, to behold his glory, to commune with him. And until we do that, we will always be filled with longing. And yet God's glory consumes that which is defiled. But the one who speaks this beatitude is the one who provides the answer for this problem. It is in Christ that we see God. It is in Christ that we will see God because he is the mediator. We read in scripture that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus Christ. We see the attributes of God, the works of God, the wonder of God, the glory of God. That's not only in the the teachings of Jesus, the words that he spoke, but in the things that he does. What kind of life did Jesus live? What did he do when he was with others? It's in his very presence on earth. The fact that he comes to earth teaches us something about God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus is an embodiment of the love of God. It's in his demeanor, his approach to sinners, his being filled with compassion, his desire to heal them. He reaches out and he touches them. He cleanses them. It's not because he excuses their sin. It's not because he is attracted to their sinfulness, but because he is filled with a holy love for them and a desire to purify them, a desire to cleanse them, to redeem them, to present them as spotless. Listen to what John Owen says. The Father gave the mission to the Son so that he would come and declare and prove this, that God is love. You look at Jesus, his life, his works, his demeanor, his approach to sinners, what do we learn? 
God is love. And this is what Owen says, which is the most joyful sight of God that any creature can obtain. What will satisfy your soul is to look upon Jesus Christ and to see and to know that the God who is majestic in holiness, the God who reigns above all, is love. And he loves his people. And he desires to save his people. And he sent his son to save his people. This is what the life of Jesus is about, to show us that God loves us. When Jesus walked on this earth, those who saw him were beholding an embodiment of the love of God. Now that truth may have been veiled to their understandings. But for those who looked upon him, not only with their human eyes, but with the eyes of faith, they could see that, that God is love. We look upon Jesus now, not with our eyes, but with the eyes of faith. And we see in him the love of God. We see in him that God is love. Thinking about the fact that we see him with the eyes of faith now, ultimately what it does is it fills our hearts with a desire to see Jesus, really with our eyes. And it informs us as to what we are to look forward to in terms of this sight of God for eternity. We don't know exactly what it will be like in heaven, in eternity, in glory, but we know that the center of our hope is this, that we will see Jesus Christ risen and exalted. With our very eyes, we will behold the beauty of our King in all of his glory. We will see him And we will love him as we've never loved before. And we will be satisfied as we have never been satisfied before. Psalm 17 ends this way. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. 1 John 3, verse 2, really a New Testament twin to that verse, says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We are to long to have the God-shaped hole in all of us filled with the vision of Christ. By being in his presence and seeing him. We are to fill our hearts with a holy desire to see our king, to worship him, to be in consummate worship in his presence. Once again, John Owen says this, Is Christ then glorious in our eyes? Do we see the Father in him? Do we constantly and daily contemplate the wisdom, the love, the grace, the goodness, the holiness, and righteousness of God as revealed and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ? Is your life filled with a holy desire to see Christ? And if it is not, or if it is not growing, it comes from a lack of seeing and glimpsing His glory which causes us uh, to have a hunger to be glimpsing more and more of this glory and to attain to that consummate vision of his glory when we leave this earth. 
and when we behold him face to face. That is the perfection to which we are headed. It's not a a me-centered perfection. It's a Christ-centered perfection. Because to have this singularity of purpose, I want to serve the Lord, I want to serve my God, I want to serve Christ and his kingdom, pushes us forward to this desire for perfection to behold him when all things come to an end. Lastly then, the purity of a pure heart. We need to see the connection between what might seem purely spiritual, this idea of a a heavenly vision, a beatific vision of Christ, and see how that actually becomes a very practical thing in our lives. So here's John Owen once again, doing a lot of John Owen today. And in seminary, they tell you, don't ever quote John Owen. Just don't do it. And so here I'm breaking all kinds of rules. I tried to soften the language a little bit from his old writing style. But he's really the best Protestant when it comes to this vision of Christ. He says this, No man shall ever become more like Christ just by imitating his actions. How do we become more like Christ? Is it by someone, someone saying to you, he was compassionate. And then you sort of go out and your life is filled with compassion. No. No man shall ever become more like Christ just by imitating his actions. You must see his glory. And be filled with a desire to glimpse more of his glory. For it is this perspective which alone brings with it the transforming power to change them. To conform them to the image of Christ. We don't become more like Jesus just by being convinced that he was this way or that way. You must be moved by A holy love. What is the the, the greatest power in the world? It's love. What compels us to action? A holy love of his glory, and especially by a hope to see his glory, a glimpse of his glory. We see him now by faith. We are to desire to see him with our eyes. And what happens if we are filled with such a hope is that Christian hope, heavenly hope, gospel hope, becomes that which fuels our desire to live in holiness and godliness and, yes, purity. Purity of heart, a singularity of purpose, will push us forward to have a heavenly hope which then compels us to live a life that is more and more free from the defilement of sin. To return to that wonderful passage in 1 John, we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One pastor puts it this way, Christians, if they embrace the hope of seeing Christ face to face, which what I'm saying is that's what we all need to do, embrace that hope of seeing Christ face to face, are to purify themselves. The pursuit of purity arises out of our possession of hope. And hope gives birth to a sanctified life, not vice versa. Those who hope are those who actively pursue holiness. Do you have hope? If you have Christian hope, you will actively pursue godliness, holiness, purity of heart. Second Corinthians chapter 7 says this, since we have these promises, right? These promises of God that show us something that is yet to come. What is Paul going to say next? Since we have these promises, let us think on them. Let us rest in them. Those may be good, but this is what he says. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Peter 3, 
According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is Christ-centered hope. This is not a self-centered, I'm going to achieve all of these things so that I can boast in what I do or I can boast in my purity of life. No, we are compelled by a holy love of Christ, a hope to see him and knowing that we will see and look upon him, uh, the one who is beautiful and righteous and pure. And so it compels us to strive after that purity, which he has given to us, which he gives to us, which is gloriously his. Hope is this supernatural virtue which fuels our desire to be free from sin. It makes us eager to fill our lives with the service of God. Not in a self-centered way, but in a Christ-centered way. Thomas Manton says this, Why are God's children so hard at work for God, but out of love to him and hope to enjoy him forever? Let us continually be serving God. Let us live always either for heaven as seeking it or upon heaven as comforting ourselves with the hope of it. Do whatever we do in its proper order to eternal life and not to be taken up with trifles. And this will put life into our endeavors. It is for a glorious and blessed destiny and perfection on which we employ all our labors. What is life for? to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. And so we devote ourselves to him and to his service, rejoicing that one day we will be happy and with him forever, and we will behold Jesus Christ face to face. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that that which has been said and is true would take root in hearts and that you by your grace would bring about these virtues, especially as we think of hope, which fuels us forward to seek a life that is more and more free of defilement. Give us a singularity of purpose in seeking your kingdom and seeking Christ. We want to long more and more to gaze on him, to gaze on our king. We thank you that he came, gave himself, redeemed us, that he rose again, and we give him all of the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.